0: Take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the book of 1st Peter. 1st Peter, chapter one, beginning in verse 13. 1st Peter, chapter one, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, living God, we pray that you might give us aid. Help us to hear your word. Help us to consider this brief time of our stay here as strangers and pilgrims below. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A word shows up in our text that shows up regularly in the book of 1 Peter. This is the first occurrence of it. Of course, it's a Greek word, but we translate it in English as is translated in verse 15, the word conduct, boys and girls that word means how we behave how we carry ourselves what we do the path of how we live our lives the word conduct shows up multiple times in 1st Peter chapter 1 verse 15 verse 18 chapter 2 verse 12 chapter 3 in multiple places conduct interestingly enough our text that you just heard read said that each of us should, quote, conduct ourselves throughout the time of our stay here in fear. Peter moves to what we are to do and how we are to live during our stay here. What does he mean? Stay here. Don't we live here? Weren't we born here? Won't many of us have many decades here? Well, yes, indeed. Should the Lord allow. That is true. But if you recall, Peter has made an argument, and it continues. He opens by calling believers strangers and exiles and pilgrims, sojourners. And then he reminds us in the first few verses after his introduction that even though we are strangers here, we are sons and daughters of God. That we await for Christ to come and the revelation of our salvation and grace to be Seen with our eyes and it's this salvation that we have that not all people have, but that we have in Christ that the prophets of old long to look into this idea that the nations would be saved through the coming Messiah, that Gentiles, pagans would be coming in mass to Christ, the prophets long to see that, verses 10 and 11, and angels of heaven, the same angels that cry the word holy, 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 those angels desire to look into this salvation, which we now have. So as is often the case in the New Testament, Peter begins the next verse with the word, therefore, what are we to do in light of this glorious reality? How are we... To conduct ourselves or said differently, because of the great salvation we have even amidst our sojourn here, our brief stay here. How ought we to conduct ourselves? The text actually is broken down according to three main verbs, and we'll use those three verbs as our three points. If you read this, you'll see a lot of phrases and a lot of instruction, but they really all center in the grammar of the text around three main ideas. And so we'll use those as our points today. The first would be this. Rest your hope fully on coming grace. Rest your hope fully on coming grace. Now, notice verse 13. The first word is not rest. It says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You could kind of translate it this way. Therefore, rest your hope fully upon the grace, girding up the loins of your minds and being sober. In other words, those first two phrases really tell us how it is that we are to rest our hope fully. On coming grace. One translation or lexicon of Greek words, actually, says this phrase, rest your hope is really, quote, to look forward to with confidence to that which is good and beneficial to hope to hope for. We are to set our hope on what is to come and notice we're told when it will come. It is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the theme of Christ's return is also regularly made clear in 1 Peter. We've already seen it in verse 7 and verse 9 and here in our passage. That there is something that is to come that is the interpretive guide for how we are to live our lives. There is something that we have not yet seen which determines for us... How we evaluate what we do see every single day. We are to rest our hope there. So this main verb, rest your hope, comes with two descriptors, doesn't it? That might seem strange to us. Looking at that first one, gird up or girding up the loins of your mind. Now, some translations seek to smooth that out. This translation that we are using this morning makes it quite literal for us what is it to gird up the loins of your mind well it's borrowing on Old Testament language places like first 1 Kings 1846 Exodus 12:11 Jeremiah 1.17, job 40 verse 7 in fact it also borrows from the language of Christ himself turn over to Luke chapter 12 Luke Chapter 12, and verse 35, the Lord Christ says this, "'Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately.'" You see, girding up your loins, boys and girls, was a process whereby a person would take the bottom of their robe and pull it up and tuck it in a type of belt so that they could move quickly. Normally, you would just let that garment flow and you could walk, but you couldn't run. You weren't ready for battle. But even soldiers in Jesus's day would often take certain parts of their garment and pull it up. Gird it up and tuck it in around certain parts of their waist and they were ready. And this is what is in view here. How do we rest our hope fully? Well, we seek to live a life where our minds are ready. The Puritan Matthew Poole, speaking about our text, says this, quote, let your minds be attent prompt, ready, prepared for your spiritual work, Restrain from all those thoughts, cares, affections and lusts which may entangle Detain, hinder them, or make them unfit for it. We are to ready our minds for action. Not the action of saving ourselves, as is clear. We are saved by Christ alone. But action based on the fact that Christ is coming soon. Action based on our pursuits here while we wait. Do you ready your mind? Regularly, Christian? Or are you carried around by every circumstance and emotion? Now, some of us have very vivid emotions and vivid thoughts. Others of us, perhaps, are very staid and solid by personality. We're not talking about an ability that is natural to each of us. Uh, Peter is not trying to give us a discussion of emotion. Or even directly mental health. What he has in view is that whatever our circumstances are, whatever our emotions and thoughts are, are we singularly bringing them back regularly through prayer and meditation to the hope that is to come? Are we girding up, as it were, the loins of our minds? This is a way that we rest our hope on the coming grace that is ours. But secondly, and relatedly, there's another word there, sober. Notice the text says, therefore, gird up. And again, we could literally translate this, girding up the loins of your mind, being sober, rest your hope fully. What does it mean to be sober? Well, quite literally, it means to not be drunk, doesn't it? It means... That we're not taking in, we're not imbibing the things of the world in such a way that our minds are distracted and confused as to where our hope really is. It means that we are focused. That the world is not something that we drink of regularly and are drunken by. There is one thing that intoxicates us. And that is Christ. And his call. Being sober and girding up the loins of our minds are how, Peter displays, we rest our hope. Think about this. A lot has been said about salvation in these first 12 verses, a lot has been said about Christ's revelation, a lot has been said about our inheritance, verses 3 through 5. And now, we are to let that reality constrain us and control us and be that which we set our mind on. So how do you rest your hope on future grace that appears when Christ comes? You ready your mind for action. You're not drunk by the world, its lusts, its ways, but soberly, thoughtfully, thoughtfully. You are regularly looking above the horizon of this world. All things are interpreted through the blessed reality that Christ is who he says that he is, that he's done for you what the word of Christ says that he's done for you and that he's coming. He's coming. So there are, of course, historic examples of where people, brothers and sisters in the faith have tried to do that. You might think, for instance, of the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. Or others who may say something akin to this, and this is not a direct quote, but I'm not going to do anything today in this hour, in this moment that I wouldn't do if Christ were coming at that moment. Now think about that. That is a very literal way of taking the truth of this verse and saying the horizon, what is to come above all of the things of this world. That is where my eyes are fixed. So how I take each step in my, quote, stay here is going to be constrained without in view. Resting our hope isn't sitting down on the ground. Resting our hope is he's coming. And each step I take, I'm going to be ready with his coming in view. So because of this great salvation. The salvation that prophets studied and angels desire to look into the salvation that comes with promised blessing and inheritance, the salvation that is my identity, even though I'm temporarily an exile, that salvation constrains me to be girding up the loins of my mind, to be sober and therein to rest my hope fully, completely on the grace that is to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Number one, then we rest our hope fully on coming grace. But there's a second verb, isn't there? And for that, we look to verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also. And then here it is. Be holy. Now, again, there is some description of what that looks like prior to the command being given. So for that, let's go back to verse 14. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, and then we get to our command. You also be holy in all your, and then there's that word, conduct. So our second point is be holy in conduct. Be holy in conduct, be separate, be set apart from sin, be set apart from ways that are against God and his gospel. Be holy. And then we're given some connecting reasons, three reasons specifically in verses 14 and 15. Three reasons or three grounds for the call for us to be holy. Firstly, in verse 14, we are to not conform ourselves to former lusts. So a way that we pursue holiness is not to live the way that we used to live when we were in sin, when we were lost, or as the text says, when we were in ignorance. We're not to follow the old pattern. This is potentially something that Peter may be borrowing from even the Old Covenant kind of language. Places like, for instance, Leviticus 18, verses 2 to 4. There we read these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. Hey, you used to live there. This is what they do there. Don't do those things. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. Hey, you're going to a new land and you're going to pilgrim there for a while before it's really your home. Don't do what they do. And then in verse four of Leviticus 18, you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances and walk in them. You see, we are to be holy in conduct, firstly, by not conforming ourselves to former lusts. But you see, the thing about us is that no matter what our personality is like, we're all kind of creatures of habit. I don't know if you've had this experience. Those of you that are younger drivers may not have had this experience yet, but I've certainly had it. You get into the car. You've done this tens of thousands of times. You turn everything on. You start to drive. And you know in your mind where you're going. i am to tell them myself here. I hope at least one other adult has had this experience. <laughs> and you begin to make your journey. And then you realize a couple of turns in that you were on autopilot. And you're going the wrong way. You had been that way so many times. You're not going to work. You're going to the store you're not going to the school. You're going to meet someone for coffee. And yet on autopilot, you just kind of conformed yourself to the ways that you used to drive all the time and you didn't even think about it because you're a creature of habit and maybe occasionally forgetful. (laughs) Peter doesn't have in mind accidentally driving a car the wrong way here. But that idea is kind of what Peter is speaking of. Hey, don't conform yourself to the old pattern, the pattern that you've done a thousand times. Now, the fact that he's telling us that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit ought to help us to see that we actually have to avoid that in the Christian life. Driving the right way for the glory of King Jesus is not going to come naturally every single day. So one of the ways that we pursue holiness in our conduct is that we don't conform ourselves to the former lusts. We don't let ourselves walk through our days on autopilot doing what we used to do. And notice The text pictures Christians as obedient children. That's what it says, right? Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance. The time when you didn't know. Which is an aside. Don't we often look at the world and we say, how could you people live your lives this way? Sometimes we see flagrant sins in public. And we're enraged by it. But there's a description for people who are living lives of ungodliness. They're living in ignorance. They're living in ignorance. And we're right to be concerned about it. We're right to have a holy zeal about it. But we also should remember that we too would be living in ignorance had God's spirit not awakened our souls. But as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Notice there's a second reason or ground for our pursuit of holiness. And what is that? Be like God. Notice the phrase, as he who called you is holy. A second ground of the pursuit of holiness is not simply, okay. I shouldn't live like I used to. A second ground is, The one who has called me and saved me and washed me with the blood of Christ is holy. I want to be like him. The chief motivation in our pursuit of holiness is that our God is holy. We want to be like him. We've grown to love his pristine ways. We've grown to cherish his precious law. We desire increasingly, although this can flutter and ebb and flow in the Christian life, we've desired increasingly to long to please him. This is a consideration when we're told by command in the scriptures to pursue holiness. To pursue a life that is set apart from sin and set apart to God. So how is it that we are to conduct ourselves in holiness? Well, not living like we used to. And remembering that the one who called us is holy, so we should be holy. So there's an example here. There's an example. But thirdly, and relatedly, look at the third component. But as he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. This is the third thing. It's related. But whereas the second one, the second reason to pursue holiness is that God is holy. The third reason is because God who is holy tells you to. He commands it because it is written, be holy for I am holy. It's a command. Not only is it an example, but it's a command now Peter may be quoting here from a variety of Old Testament passages. One may be, for instance, Leviticus 11:44 and 45. "Be holy, for I'm holy." But what's interesting is one scholar with the last name of McCartney has noticed that throughout the book of First Peter, whenever Peter is about to end one section and start a new section, he quotes from the Old Testament. It's interesting. You'll see that throughout. We're told through Peter by the living God to be holy. A, by remembering we don't live as we used to live, we don't let ourselves live on autopilot. B, by following God's example. And C, by remembering that holiness is a command. I hope you're seeing something, beloved. I'll say it this way. Coming grace, the grace that has been spoken of as being revealed in multiple places, coming grace doesn't mean that there is not work. I want to be crystal clear here. The work that we're called to do here, the pursuit of holiness, is not the ground of our salvation. And we are right in our day to want to say that, to get that right. There are some who are muddling that up. Muddling it up in such a way that they're kind of implying that the pursuit of holiness is the basis of your salvation. that's absolutely wrong. The text itself has made clear it's what Christ and his blood. And just a moment in verse 17, we'll see that it's the precious blood of Christ that is the ground of our salvation. But just as we want to avoid, avoid confusion there, we also ought to avoid confusion on the other side. And that confusion is this. Don't ever say anything but grace. But where do we hear that? Well, we hear it sometimes in those who muddle it the other way. Christ is our righteousness, so there's no work for us to do. And they mean well, because he is the only righteousness that saves. But coming grace does not mean that we are not told to actually do certain things. Right? And just to, just to make this clear and just try to sandwich this correctly, verse 12 says that we have a salvation. Right. Peter makes this very personal to his initial readers. To them, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you. The gospel has come to you. Verse 14, he then shifts and says, you're obedient children. <coughs> and in verse 18, he's going to say that you are redeemed. So sandwiching all of this is what Christ has done. And Christ alone. He bled, not you. He perfectly obeyed, not you. Our identity is set. What Peter is talking about here is demonstrating that identity in holiness. You know, often perhaps because of the texts we arrive at, perhaps because of the winds of our day, perhaps because as a preacher, I'm aware of my own weaknesses, perhaps can even project that onto the congregation. Regularly, from this pulpit, we say, and I think we're right to do it, run to Christ. Trust His commands. Assurance of salvation is predominantly in what He has done. Then you secondarily look for assurance in how you're living your life. Yes, fruits. But receive His promises. But this text, which will give us bold assurance in just a few moments, ought to at least cause us to say, Do I have a concern at all? For holiness. Because if I don't have a concern for holiness. I ought to have a concern for my soul. I ought to ask myself if I have no concern and brothers and sisters, I don't mean a perfect concern. You will never have a perfect concern in this life for the holiness that you're called to live. But if you have no concern For the call to gird up your loins of the mind and be sober. To rest your hope on what is to come. To live not according to the lusts that you used to walk around in. To consider that God has called you to be holy. If you don't have a concern at all for that, you really ought to ask yourself the question, is Jesus' blood really that precious to me? Because I was cleaned If I'm in Christ, I was cleaned with the most precious substance ever. And why don't I care at all about filth in my life? So. I do not mean to call every Christian to question their assurance today. But I do mean to point you to the commands of blood washed believers that we receive. Pursue holiness. Pursue separation from sin and the world. Remember that when we say I was converted, we actually were converted. What are we to do with our stay here? Well, we're to rest our hope fully on the grace that is to come. We are to be holy in conduct. But thirdly, and finally, we are to spend our days in fear. Now, boys and girls, don't be scared by that word fear. We'll talk about what that word means. But notice what verse 17 says. And if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct. Received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Conduct yourselves in fear. What are we to think about this word, fear? Well, we could think about it perhaps, perhaps as the way that Paul describes it over in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, you can turn there with me. Or just listen to this as read Philippians two verse twelve. Paul says similar things. He says, "Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling." And if if you're new to the things of Christianity, I need you to understand that that word "work" doesn't mean work to get saved. Think of it more along the lines of you're on the team. And every day, part of being on the team is that you have to go to the gym and work out. You don't work out in hopes that you will one day make the team. No, you're, you're on the team. Christ has put you on the team by his blood alone. But you work out. That's what is in view here working out this salvation that you have with fear and trembling. Commenting on this passage in our text in 1 Peter, John Gill, commenting on this very phrase, says this, In fear, not of men nor of devils, nor of death and judgment, hell and eternal damnation. For such a fear is not consistent with the love of God shed abroad in the heart. and is the effect of the law and not encouraged by the gospel. Then he says this fear is in natural men, yea, in devils themselves. He continues that. What is this fear that Peter speaks of here? He says this. But in the fear of God and which springs from the grace of God and is increased by it. Is consistent with the strongest acts of faith and with the greatest expressions of spiritual joy. Is opposite to pride and self-confidence and includes the whole worship of God. External and internal. And in. A religious conversation in humility and lowliness of mind. I think he's right there. What he's saying is when we read this word fear, this text is not telling us, hey, be afraid of hell. Hey, be afraid of devils. I mean, elsewhere, we're told we need to be on guard. But here, what is in view is a holy reverence with every step that we take, not out of law-based fear, but out of gospel-infused desire. We're to spend our days in the fear of the Lord. Perhaps, though, we could say that much of Christianity in our day has lost its tremble. Paul, reading off the same sheet of music with Peter, says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think it would be a mistake to say, live every day as if you still could go to hell. But rather, live every day remembering how precious the blood that redeemed you is. We are not called to live every day as a criminal who's trying to escape the law. We're to live every day as a son or a daughter who so loves his or her mother that he doesn't want to do. She doesn't want to do anything to cause that mother to feel the grief of disappointment. We are not criminals who have not been to the bar of justice. But perhaps in our bold realization of that, we forget that we are sons and daughters who have been bought by the blood of our elder brother. Precious blood. And so every step we take here, every moment that we breathe here, ought to be infused by the reality that we have such a reverence for such a God, such a Father, that our conduct here is forever changed because of it. Now, just like our other two points, Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us some reasons. The first is this. You call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. See that? Look at verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout your stay here in fear. Notice the connection in this verse between God as father, family, and yet is one that we have reverential fear for. We call on him as father who doesn't judge with partiality. I I can't say... Because my dad is the boss that I get to get away with things. I can't say because my mommy is the school teacher of my class that I get to get away with certain things. Oh, God judges without partiality. But he is our father. Let us, therefore, have reverential fear as we live out our days. But secondly, look at verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with precious blood. Again, do you see how these phrases work? If you have a fairly literal translation in English of this text, you'll see it. There'll be a verb and before it and after it are what we call participles actions that kind of describe what that verb is doing. Or looking like. You're calling on God as Father, and you know that you were not redeemed with silver or gold, but with Jesus' blood. Therefore, what are you doing? You're conducting yourselves in fear. Now let's look then at that second one that we are not redeemed from our aimless conduct with corruptible things. Look at the things that he chooses. Earlier, when he spoke about our faith being tested, what did he pick? He picked the most valuable of metals. Refined in the fire, though it perishes, right? The richest of this world will perish. So to now, he says, you weren't redeemed with even the best things of this world, silver or gold. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, The precious blood of Christ. It's not corruptible. It's not of this world. Is the blood of Christ precious to us? Is it precious to us? We're then given a few descriptors of our Savior. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, and then there's just... An onslaught of description of Christ and His work. Look there. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That ought to take us back to passages like Exodus twelve five, The sacrifice of your freedom must be without blemish. And He is. Verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. If you're new to the things of Christianity, this doesn't mean that Jesus was created a long time ago. This is the eternal son of God. But from all eternity, he was foreordained to be the redeemer of a people. And now in these last times, he's made manifest. But then look at verse 21. Who through him, You, that is, believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God raised Christ from the dead. If your hope is in him, not only are you secure before the living God, but you have belief in God rightly. Because of Christ's resurrection and God-given glory, it is clear that Christ is truly Lord. And if your faith is in him, you are resting aright in God. Maybe all of this talk this morning is a bit confusing for you because you came here and someone invited you and you've heard the word sin. You've heard the name Jesus before, but you don't know what all the fuss is about. There's perhaps a simpler overarching word for you, and that is this. The phrase, their precious blood of Christ, is important because you see what that means is that God gave his son to be the ransom, the sacrifice, the blood spiller. For sinners, which is what we all are. We've all broken God's law. We've all rejected God. We've all turned against God. Openly or confusedly, we have a fist raised in the face of the only true and living God. But God in His mercy, the God who must punish all sins, sent His Son. His Son poured out His blood according to His humanity. He lived a perfect life honoring the Father. And there, at the cross, at the empty tomb, there is a pure and complete substitute for every sinner who ever trusts in Christ. God poured out precious blood to wash away the sins of all the people who ever trust in Christ. And so, yes, you need to know that Christians are called to live holy lives. You need to know that there's all this language about something that is to come. But if you really want to know what Christianity is about, if you really want to know the key issue, the core issue of the entire Bible, it is this. God is glorious. He is holy. He is the final say. And we are lost miserably before him. But he sent in his love and mercy his son to to wash us. And the pages of scripture, every one of them, from one angle or another, preach this. Christ will wash you with his blood. Christ will receive you. And redeem you. Will you repent of your sin. As you hear of Christ. Your response is repenting of sin and by faith receiving Him alone. This is why His blood is precious. Because it is the richest thing for any of us. Silver and gold. Oh, we love it. I love it. Some of you love it, don't we? Don't we think if I could just get a little bit more silver or gold or if if I could get other people in this life to just give me a little more silver or gold or if I could get all of the things that I want out of this life. We treasure those things, but they're not precious. Jesus's blood is precious. It's what's redeemed us. So. Because of that. We spend our days as we wait. In fear. Three simple truths for us this morning. resting our hope fully on coming grace. Being holy in our conduct and spending our days in fear. Those are what Peter says we are to do. But it's only because of the salvation that has already come our way. Let's pray. Living God, help your people to be exhorted and comforted. Help them to consider not only their sin and failures, but the perfection of precious blood. Pray these things in Jesus name.